Welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that must be Julie. You're back for another ramble through our library and our reading list to hopefully enjoy our uh, conversation about what we've stumbled onto and what you might like to. I'm going to try to stay focused tonight. I will admit that right now while I am talking, I have at least one eye on the TV where March Madness is going on. We're recording this on Saturday <laughs> night, so if you hear any random shouts, you'll know Joe has gotten just a little bit too excited. I can't see the TV where I'm at, so that's by design. You, if something crazy happens, convey it with an appropriate like raised eyebrow or something, but I literally can't see it from here, so oh well. All right, well, we'll, we'll get back into books. Um, I read two books on my own over the past two weeks. I feel like, again, I feel like I'm down. Normally I would read so much more, I think, but I've just been kind of plodding along steadily. Two books here, two books there. So this time, the first one that I finished was called Love at First by Kate Claiborne. Um, her book, Love Lettering, I read last summer, and it was just an utter delight. So when Love at First came out, I think I pre-ordered it. I think I got it like on the day, like we, we got it as fast as we could when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just as delightful. Um, she writes romance novels. This one was um, loosely based on Romeo and Juliet, very loosely, um, but it had a lot of illusions and that made it really fun for me, kind of looking for that Shakespearean stuff throughout. Um, in the book, Will, haha, Will, Shakespeare, etc. Anyway, um, Will has inherited an apartment from his estranged uncle. It's in Chicago where he is a doctor and he intends to renovate and rent this apartment um, without regard for the feelings of the tenants in this building who have lived there for like their entire lives, including Nora, who lives two floors up and will be the object of his affection for this story. That's very convenient the way that worked out. It always is, you know? Um, And they meet on a balcony, so, you know... (laughs) I just, I had fun with this. I just thought it was really, really fun all the way through. Um, A super sweet story. Then I read, at the same time, um, the book Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First by Laura Tremaine. This is my nonfiction. I tend to do a fiction and a nonfiction at the same time. And this one was based off Laura Tremaine's podcast, 10 Things to Tell You which she calls an interactive podcast where she presents some kind of question and then attempts to answer it. And then she wants you to take it back to your journal, your blog, your social media, your friends and discuss it yourself. So that was kind of the setup for this book too. She posed 10 questions like, what do you believe? What broke you? Um, Who was there for you? All this kind of stuff. And then she told little stories Um, about how she would answer these questions, and then you're supposed to take those back. I was kind of skeptical of this book at first because I just didn't really see how that was going to work as a book. Mm -hmm. It just sounded really kind of random and all over the place. But it was amazing. She is a really, really good writer, and these stories held together really well. It felt like you were reading a whole bunch of short stories in one book, and the way that she connected all of the little essays together with the structure of the running questions worked really well. It, it surprised me, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it is yet another book that I wish I had a book club for to go through some of these questions. Well, structure is such an underrated part of the writing craft. Yeah, it really I mean, is. It, it really can make a difference between a good book and a great book, 
or a not really okay book and an okay book. I mean, that's usually more where I'm at. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, if I organize this perfectly, it (laughs) might hold together enough to be recognizable. But, but no, I mean, that's, it's really a fundamental part of what you do is figuring out the best way to get your particular thing across. And I, yeah, it's really an underrated part of the creative process. People don't think of that as a creative thing, but often it really has to be. When I write, revision is one of my favorite things, and I really like to think about structure, and I really, I know you're shaking your head, you hate revision, <laughs> but I love revising, and I love looking at the structure and how all these pieces can fit together better, and it's just really, really nerdy, I know, but it's really, really fun for me when I read a book that I'm like, that structure is perfect. Mm-hmm. It holds everything together without that structure it might have fallen apart but because of that structure that is a great book no i'm i'm a structure nerd i mean the a good parallel is that i sometimes play the bass and if you listen to music Mm -hmm. you don't listen to bass but if i've been playing bass when i'm listening to a piece of music i'm like wow that guy is really knocking it out of the park on the bass (laughs) and it may be something i've heard a hundred times but it's just not there until you're really looking for it. And you're like, oh, that, that's pretty good. So little nerd baseball there from us. Just totally random sidetrack. But like when you play bass, like you most of the time play it with our band at church. Mm-hmm. And I, I never can hear you very well with it, of <laughs> no. course, because, again, the bass is holding the whole thing together. But I remember that one Sunday when our music pastor said, go, Joe. And I was like, wait. Wait, that's you. I can hear you. And you just had this really cool bass part. Yeah, my, my five second of soloing. It was amazing. By design. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm a late convert. It's 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 very it's a lot like my writing. It's functional. It ain't pretty. Uh, people don't don't come to service to hear that. Not that they should, but <laughs> I anyway, I just totally random. You tell about your books. Yeah, now. there we go. We were gonna <laughs> talk about my bass playing. That's <laughs> I'm easily distracted tonight. I mean, the I gotta quit looking at the TV too. Go I ahead. I understand. Well, I, I wasn't terribly productive either. Although I'm reading some really good stuff now, I think I'm setting myself up for one of those times where, like, the next one teaser, uh, there's going to be some great stuff. One of which you're mad at me a little bit because you've been like, read this, and we'll talk about it on the podcast, and I have it, and I have it, and now I'm I'm like a third of the way through it, and I'm like, wow, this is great. And you're I like, can't uh, even. Yeah. We could have been talking about that book tonight if you had just picked it up and earlier. And I'm not even going to say what it is because we might well talk about it next time. So, we will talk about it next time. Oh, unless I read something <laughs> better. I'm reading Peter Gralnick's book, which I've, I've been kind of working on. It's It's like a book of columns, so I can kind of pick it up and put it down. And I read something that might be my favorite thing of his ever, which is saying something. I mean, it's like, saying, okay, this is my favorite Bob Dylan album. I mean, because Peter Gralnick writes about music like few people do. But anyway, future, future time. This time, uh, I read a book called And In The End, The Last Days of the Beatles by I, Ken McNabb. I've seen this book laying around, and I've been really curious about it. You haven't told me much. No, it's a good book. Uh, McNabb goes through the year 1969, which sees the Beatles uh, record the stuff that becomes Let It Be, fight with each other. Uh, In the case of two of them, get divorced. In the case of one of them, get busted for drugs. In the case of one of them, uh, pull off the the series of bed-ins, best parodied in the Ruddles with the famous, (laughs) within the shower, getting wet for peace. Oh, my gosh. But... uh, then record Abbey Road, and then ultimately decide that it's time to end the whole thing. Uh, 
there's very little in this book that's groundbreaking as far as like new research. Especially for somebody like you, who's pretty much read every Beatles book. Well, I, I have read a ton of it. Uh, and, and I've talked before about Mark Lewishon, who is in mm-hmm. the midst of a three-volume set that will be the definitive, right. ultimate thing. So again, back to organization. What McNabb does is different. He takes it month by month. You go each month, here's what's going on. Uh, and he goes into the business fight that, that really was breaking out. John Lennon fell under the spell of Alan Klein, who'd worked with the Rolling Stones. Uh, Paul McCartney was under the spell of his future in-laws, uh, who were these successful corporate lawyers, and there was tension there, and there's Yoko, and there's Linda. And you really, one of the things everybody likes to talk about is why the Beatles broke up, and this book does a great job of getting to the heart of the fact that there are 10 million reasons why the Beatles broke up. There's not one. Everybody, you know, poor Yoko, uh, she had her part in it, but so did everything else under the sun. It's true. And that's really what McNabb gets to, does it in a in a... Very, you know, fresh, clean, easy to read way. Um, even if you're a pretty big Beatle nerd like I am, it's not so much that I found new things as that old things were organized in a way that made me think about them in a new way. So props to him for a difficult task. Yeah, really good. Um, also did 11 Rings by Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson, one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time and a very fascinating dude. Phil Jackson, for me, kind of marks the spot where a basketball coach goes from being a red-faced guy with really short shorts and a whistle and a tendency to bark at everybody to being kind of a master psychologist. Because Phil Jackson, more than anything else, is an ego juggler. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, throw those Mm, egos in the air. Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, egos flying in the air. Won 11 championship rings. Uh, No small thing. Well, and he did it because he knew how to relate to these guys. He comes from an interesting background. He's from North Dakota, and he was the child of a pair of, like, I'm going to say Pentecostal, but that's not right. It's something like Pentecostal ministers. I mean, he talks in here about how he grew up not being allowed to go to the movies, Mm. uh, not being allowed to go to school dances. Uh, And he comes from this background, and as a player, he goes to the NBA and has a pretty good career. Not so much because he's a great star. He wasn't, but he was a contributing player on championship teams, and that taught him a lot about how you measured success and how you dealt with egos to get the most out of people. Um, And he gets into coaching. One of my favorite things in here is he had a book club with his teams. One of his things, and I know Calipari does this at Kentucky, if you played for Phil Jackson, he gave you a book to read, and he and you would talk about it over the course of the season. He said everybody wow. didn't read them, but he said, I thought more than anything, it was the fact that I wanted to know these guys, and I cared enough to be like, okay, Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe Bryant might get the art of Zen and motorcycle repair. <laughs> I remember one guy got Beavis and Butthead's this book sucks. But, oh, uh, you know, I, I, the fact that he was thinking about these guys mm-hmm. uh, mattered to them. And, and the other big takeaway that I loved in this book as with most coaches, I think he had an affinity for the players who reminded of him, him of himself. He has great things to say about Jordan and Shaq and Kobe, but it's guys like Derek Fisher, like Steve Kerr, the guys who weren't the most talented players but who understood their role and did what he wanted them to do to make the team function. Those are the guys he has the most lavish praise for because I think those are the guys he identifies with. This, sounds, this book is just so very you. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love the fact that basketball coaches, uh, you know, it really has gone from, you know, I, I look at football. In football, we still have a lot of, you know, tobacco-spitting guys who will grab people by the face mask and, and yell at them. Basketball is really less and less that way. In the tournament, we had a thing earlier where Tom Izzo was getting in guys' faces and yelling, and every time it happens, it's kind of more embarrassing. Basketball coaches, it's it's really more of the pop psychologist. You're mm-hmm. you're, you know, you got to be able to draw up plays and recruit guys, but you know the the culture is changing. You can't just get in guys' faces and shout and expect them to respond anymore. And and you know, nobody. Uh, cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That's a, an element of this. Pretty much applies in all aspects of life. True. And the other one, Mr. Klutz is Nuts by Dan Gutman. We're continuing the Weird School series. My son enjoyed this one. Mr. Klutz is the principal who does so many crazy things uh, that eventually the kids like call him on it and they're like, no, we will not do a million math problems unless you will not jump off the roof of the school. And he's kind of chastened and sad, but he's like, okay, fine. I won't jump off the roof. Just do the math problems then. That's really weird. All the adults in these stories <laughs> kind of have to make kids think they're crazy to get anything out of them, which I is mean, a little scary. I mean, that seems to go a little beyond crazy. Well, I mean, Mr. Klutz is nuts. It's there in the title. He, he didn't bury the lead on this one, I'm yeah. just going to say. We've moved on to Mrs. Rupee is Loopy, so I'll report back on that one I soon. need to read some of these. They're fun. They All really right. are. Well, cool. Okay. Well, not so fun. <laughs> How's that for the segue? Okay, well, usually that's you're... The, the, that's the conversation we've been having all day was not so fun about this next book. Well, you're, you're usually the impetus on our shared books. One, you generally read more than I do. And two, you generally read books of a more wide you know, readership than I do. Yeah, so that I'll read something and I can say, okay, I really think you would like this or you would not like this. And, and I can make those differentiations because I read widely. With a lot of the things I read, it's how much would you not like this? And that seems to be the question that you asked this week. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. Well, (laughs) okay. Tell what we read. Well, I read this about a year ago with our daughter, which is why it was kind of fresh in my mind. And you were looking for something to read and I knew it was something you hadn't read. And so I said, go to the shelf of the classics and pull out that nice slim volume, which is Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. Which prompted immediate ire from me, despite the fact that I have meant to read this book. For English years teacher. And... <laughs> okay, that's enough. <laughs> I have meant to read this book for years and years. Yes, I have taught English, um, was an English major. I had never read this one, and so I've really meant to do it, but I've just never wanted to. And I did not want to when you picked it up and handed it to me either. Part of it is that for me, and I think probably for most people, reading goes in phases. You know, we've we've talked about this a little bit. Um, When I was in high school, I wanted every piece of classic literature that they could give me. Like I ate it up. Yeah. My dad was an English teacher. He was giving me, um, you know, Wuthering Heights, Tessa the Deer Reveals. When I was sixth, seventh grade, I was like, I was just soaking it all in. I couldn't wait to read. This was the good stuff, you know? And I loved it. And I loved every single thing that I read until I ran smack into Billy Bud in um, AP English senior year. And I didn't even want to say that that was a bad book. It was just the first book that I had read that was quote unquote classic literature that I was like, 
what the heck is this? What is this about? It's Willa Cather's My Antonia for me. For you, yeah. And again, I'm sure it's a great book. Just and, I and wasn't there. And I know there. that Billy Budd is a great yeah. book. I just wasn't in that space. Right. And so I went on into college, and, and again, an English major, I loved almost everything I read. I just soaked it in, couldn't get enough, loved my classes. And then after college, even after college, I like if somebody said this is a literary novel and it's good, sign me up, give me that book. You know, you're, you know, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to read everything that was kind of like hard um, and, and was really gritty and about life as it really is. Um, <laughs> then you lived a little bit more of life as it really is. <laughs> but this is the thing about that kind of literature. To me right now, anyway, um, it, it takes, it takes a different kind of headspace than I always have right now. Yeah. Like, we've talked about this. I pulled out Les Mis again the other day. I love Les Mis. I read it in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to read it again. But right now, my reading is so much more fits and starts. Like, I can read 10 pages here, and then I can come back in two hours, and I might get another five. You can't read a novel like Les Mis like that. Yeah. It took me about six months to read the Tolstoy book that I read. It was a gorgeous book. Oh, my gosh. I loved it. But the last... 200 pages, I was just like, let's just knock it out, get it done, get it done, because it was taking yeah. me so long. And I think the other thing that's missing for me, which is remedied by, you know, us, us doing this right now, there's nobody to talk to about it. In high school, you had your class. In college, you had your class or you had your friends or whatever. But I, when I am so busy and my reading is so fragmented, to read something that's heavy and takes such careful thought like this kind of literature does... Mm-hmm. You need somebody to talk to you about it. So all that said, The Old Man in the Sea actually worked out really well for me because it is so short and I could talk to you about it immediately. So really all of my complaining about this book was unfounded. It turned out that I really did think that this book was special. Well, you know, if I was giving you a plot summary, I can give you a plot summary of The Old Man in the Sea in about two sentences. I mean, old man befriended by a young boy. Catches great fish, tries to drag it back, loses the carcass, is going to die. The end. Uh, but there's so much more meat on the bone. Uh, I, I love Hemingway. I love Faulkner. Uh, I was lucky enough to take a class under the brilliant Walker Rutledge mm-hmm. at, at WKU, who, who taught me a lot about how to read both of them uh, and appreciate them as totally different paths to the same well of genius. Um, But I think that Hemingway, even more so than Faulkner, and you can say that I'm wrong on this because you've read a lot more Faulkner than I have. Um, But I've read a decent amount of Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you look at his work side by side, maybe even kind of of chronologically, Mm -hmm. he shows, his, his reflect the change in his life stages, in his personality, much more than Faulkner's do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, we, we talked about this book, and I got a little bit emotional because I said, book matters a lot to me because in many ways it's his literary swan song. I mean, A Movable Feast comes later, but it's taken from notes of things that happened decades and decades before. It's not really later. No, yeah, really, if you're looking at chronologically, it's it's a young man's book, yeah. and The Old Man in the Sea is an old man's book. It's his book. old man's book. It's his book about looking into this chasm of mortality. And, I mean, not that long after this book comes out, he takes his own life. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I just so much prefer to remember Hemingway 
the way that the writer comes across in The Old Man in the Sea. Not that he's, he's in any way sentimental about the journey to old age and to death, but that it's undertaken by a man who lives by a simple but honest code, who recognizes that there's a right way and there's an easy way to do everything in life. And which one of those you choose makes a vast, vast difference. And even through this great tribulation and in the shadow of death, he will choose to do things the right way. Uh, I, I like to think about that There's a, a lot no, more. a nobility to that man that many of Hemingway's other characters in his other books do not have. Yeah. Because what they're focused on is control. Control of the way the world sees them, the way they're perceived. Sex, yeah. Yeah, all of their circumstances. They need to be the ones in charge, admired, mm-hmm. arrogant. But this old man just, he identifies with his craft, you know, the catching of this fish, the fish itself, um, in a way that recognize the commonality, recognizes the commonality among all living things. And it, it, it's able, it, it seems to make him able to let go of that arrogance, this I must be the king, I must be the conqueror. But and folk, it, it's more on this is what I have to offer, this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. Take it or leave it. Yeah, and, and you know, again, he goes after this great fish in the course of battling this great fish. He identifies so much with the mm-hmm. fish. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he he respects the fish. It's it's yes. And then he he gets the fish and he tries to bring it in. It's this great moment of triumph. He has done this thing nobody thinks he can do. He still does things the old way, but he's done it the right way. And he's done this. And the sharks come and they tear the fish apart. Um, and, and but the thing is, he still gets some of that recognition. You the, peop- the people who know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, people, and that's a very Hemingway thing. The people who get it, get yes. it. The, everybody won't get it. But no, everybody wouldn't have gotten it had he brought home the whole giant thing. No, you know? no. You cannot control those, those perceptions. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to me about this book, the idea of who he is at his core being the thing that matters the most. Yeah. Not what you can do, not what you have to show for it, but your character. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, okay, my, my left field tangent, I told you I was going to talk about <laughs> this because it fascinates me, the, the kind of cultural anthropologist in me. I love that when he and the boy talk, and it comes up in his head when he's out there battling this fish, he thinks of the great iconic American hero of the era, the man who he identifies with as a craftsman, as an American, as a living male, and it's Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. And DiMaggio was a fisherman, just like me, and that's part of it. And he thinks of DiMaggio and battling his bone spurs as he battles his arthritis in his hands as he tries to fight this fish. And I'm like, here you were, Paul Simon. It was all laid out for you decades before you wrote it in Mrs. Robinson. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Um, here was where he was. He was in the middle of this story. As a baseball guy, it breaks my heart because nobody would write a novel like this and talk about Mike Trout or Javier Baez or Cody Bellinger. Baseball doesn't mean what it used to mean. Well, celebrity culture means a different thing very, now. Very, very true. What also, it used to mean. Yeah. yeah, if Joe DiMaggio was alive today, 
we'd all be looking at the front of the tabloids to see the latest pictures of him with Marilyn Monroe. We'd have too much off his Twitter page, you know? <laughs> I mean, it changes the way that, that you see and can, can kind of honor yeah. that celebrity. Yeah, so, so you know, a side diversion, but one that, that is filled with, with meaning. I know, you know, when I read it with my daughter, her ears kind of perked up. It's like, DiMaggio, yeah, yeah, DiMaggio. He's talking about baseball. He's talking about that DiMaggio. And speaking of Natalie, we talked about it again with her today to see, because she was interested in when I thought about it. Mm-hmm. And she said her main takeaway was that she did not like the ending. She wished that it had ended better. She wanted it to end in a happier way. And I 100% identify with that as a person who likes happy endings. But weirdly enough, I thought this was kind of a happy ending because the older I get, the more I feel like living by your own coat, living by what you think is right is all we have to offer the world, really, at the end of it. Well, and, and don't forget the boy. The boy who's the third character, the old man, the fish, and the boy. Who is learning from the old man That's to it. follow that same kind of code. I think of that moment that I love at the end of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou that breaks me every time, where the, the singing girls, it's the end of the movie. The singing girls are And going she's the down only the one who can see Yeah, the last little girl sees the blind seer who started the whole story, and she's the only one of them who stops and hears him, yeah. but somebody hears him. And carries that story on. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous, and I have goosebumps right now from a book that I firmly resisted reading <laughs> that I said hateful things to you about, like during the whole first, I don't know, 30, 40 pages of this book. Um, it was, like I posted I posted things on my Instagram. <laughs> I was so grumpy. And it was, a, But this was an amazing book, and I just want to, retroactively here apologize to any of you who like me hadn't read it and now we've spoiled it for you entirely like well i mean you you knew what would happen 10 pages into the book it's not going to be a great mystery it's how it happens it's it's the journey it really is you know where the journey's going before you start but the other thing is it is short it's only about 120 page novels so if you want a little taste of him you should read it anyway oh yeah yeah. i mean for whom the bell tolls is is my a number one hemingway book but this is a number two it's great in a different much more digestible than for whom the bell tolls for whom the bell tolls is one of those books that again i read it by myself but i read it in college um when i feel like you know things were just Swirling, it was a different head phase then. Sure. Um, I feel like for whom the bell tolls, that was another one you ought to read with somebody. Maybe you read we'll it. We'll do the it class. someday. It's on the shelf in there. I've already read that one. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean you can't do a reread. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> that one was a really good one, so I'll I'll give you that. Well, thanks so much for joining joining us. He said uh, on our literary jaunt. By all means, reach out. Tell us what you think. If you hated Old Man in the Sea or if you thought it was a masterpiece or like our daughter, you were kind of somewhere in the middle on it uh, or what you're reading or what we should read. Again, we got some good stuff on tap, uh, but always delighted to hear from and interact with any of you. Uh, For instance, Andy's kind wife who sent us some excellent YA recommendations that I saw Natalie reading one of those for the second time the other day. She had one, and I'm like, hey, what are you? She's like, yeah, I read it before, but I'm reading it again. I'm like, well, the library hasn't asked for it back yet, so go to town. Yeah, so. she's ready, she says, for the next Percy Jackson. That's where she is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Thank you all. It's uh, Paperback Readers 
paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email. Paperbackreaderspod on Instagram, where I will post something about this episode, probably to, uh, tomorrow or Monday. And Peedback Readers Pod on Twitter, although I probably check it uh, about the interval of every senatorial election. But uh, don't let that stop you. Just fill up that inbox anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And in the meanwhile, please keep.